Thank you all very much for coming. Thanks for having me. My name is Mike Lusmore. Um, today we'll be talking about Aravedge, also known as Vismodegib, uh, and its role in the treatment of advanced and metastatic basal cell carcinoma. All right. Uh, so this program is presented on uh, behalf of Genentech, and the information presented within is consistent with FDA guidelines, and I have been compensated by Genentech to serve as faculty for this program. Aravage does carry with it a black box warning. We'll cover this about three times in the presentation because it is very important. Um, if exposed to a uh, fetus or embryo, it has a risk of teratogenic effects, including mid midline defects, missing digits, and other malformations. Therefore, you should always verify the pregnancy status of female patients who could become pregnant prior to the initiation of the drug, and they need to be on a highly effective form of contraception throughout the course of the drug. Male patients also need to be informed that they can transmit the medication through semen to female partners, so they need to be aware of that and using a form of protection condoms with spermicides to prevent such transmission. And if you suspect that a female patient of childbearing potential has possibly been exposed to the medication, please have them contact their healthcare provider immediately. And if you have an exposure, uh, Aravedge has set up a uh, hotline, the Genentech Adverse Event Line, you see it listed there. Um, please call them. This presentation is broken up into five components. The first will be an overview of the role of the hedgehog pathway in advanced basal cell carcinoma. The second will be a discussion on the Aravance pivotal phase two trial of this medication. This is the study in which I was uh, a sub-investigator. Then we'll talk about some Aravance safety data and talk about some case studies from the Aravance trial itself. And lastly, speak about a little for the patient access to the medication. So the hedgehog pathway is important in many different uh, aspects of cell proliferation and survival. Uh, there are a couple main uh, transmembrane proteins involved. One is patched, and the other is smoothened. Now, smoothened, uh, as you all know, is constituently active and involved in upregulating uh, cell growth and transcription. In the presence of patch, patch binds to smoothened, and smoothened cannot uh, continue cell growth. Hedgehog ligand binds to patch and removes the patch inhibition from smoothened. So normally, patch binds to smoothened, smoothened is off. Hedgehog binds to patched, patched comes off of smoothened, smoothens on. Now, why is this important? Because in over 90% of basal cell carcinomas, there's a mutation somewhere along this pathway, most commonly either in patched or in smoothened. So your two mutations are an inactivating mutation in patched, meaning patched cannot bind and thus cannot turn off smoothened, or an activating mutation in smoothened, where patch, even if it does bind to smoothened, cannot turn it off. Aravedge is a hedgehog inhibitor. So what it does is it binds to smoothened itself, stopping smoothened from being active. So even if the mutation's in patched or if there's a mutation in smoothened, theoretically, Aravid should be able to turn off smoothened. Now, is this useful for us? Well, there are certain cases of basal cell carcinoma that are just very difficult to treat for one reason or another. And as I said, Aravid is approved for two situations. One is for patients with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma, and the other is for patients with metastatic basal cell carcinoma. So you may be asking, what is a locally advanced basal cell carcinoma? Well, that is in the eye of the clinician, you guys. So these are some examples of uh, locally advanced uh, cancers that were determined by the clinician to be advanced. The first one shows a difficult location. This basal cell involves a large portion of the ear, um, and as a Mohs surgeon, I can tell you that reconstructing this is difficult, um, especially if this basal cell goes around to the other side, because then you can't even do a skin graft or some easier methods of reconstruction because you need viable tissue behind to provide nutrients. Bare cartilage just won't survive on a skin graft. 
So this location, this patient could very well lose a large portion of their ear, and that's cosmetically and functionally an issue. Uh, the second patient, you see this very large invasive tumor. Sometimes you get tumors that are invasive down into the skull table, uh, becoming very difficult to treat surgically as well as contraindicated to treat radiologically because you can't have uh, risk of, of dural or, or brain uh, injury from radiation. The third indication would be like a recurrent tumor. Uh, patients have had multiple treatments in the past and the tumors keep recurring. At that point, it becomes much more difficult to clear surgically and you may want to try a different modality such as Aravage. And the fourth is metastatic tumors. Uh, up until now, there really has not been a good treatment for basal cells. Basal cells, as you know, grow very slowly. Traditional chemotherapeutics do not work very well on slow-growing tumors. They are by nature meant to stop fast-growing tumors. So metastatic basal cell is very difficult to treat. So to find out the efficacy of Aravedj in these kind of situations, the Aravant study was thought out and planned, and it was a phase two study of Aravedj in patients with both locally advanced basal cell carcinoma and metastatic basal cell carcinoma. Locally advanced basal cell carcinoma was minimum size of 10 millimeters. They had to have a minimum size for the oncology guidelines, as well as had to be deemed either inoperable or had to have been irradiated before or not a candidate for radiation. Metastatic basal cell carcinoma was obviously basal cell carcinoma that had metastasized beyond the local region. All these patients were placed on 150 milligrams of Aravage daily until either disease progression or unacceptable toxicity occurred. There were no dose reductions allowed in the study. However, patients were allowed to take up to a four-week drug holiday to assess some of the uh, intolerable uh, side effects of the medication. Primary endpoint was an objective response rate determined by independent reviewer. And secondary endpoints, uh, which we will not discuss today, included duration of response, overall survival, um, and progression-free survival. So baseline characteristics of the patients, the median age for both cohorts was 62 years of age, with a slight male preponderance in the locally advanced basal cell carcinoma group and a large male preponderance in the metastatic basal cell carcinoma group. 100% of the patients were considered to be white, and 21% of patients had a previous diagnosis of Gorlin or basal cell nevus syndrome. Patients were allowed to have had prior therapies prior to the initiation of this uh, study. Um, this is important to note that these are therapies directed to any basal cell they'd had in the past, not necessarily the lesions that were being studied in the, the trial itself. So for the local advanced basal cell cohort, 89% of patients had had previous surgery on a basal at some point in their life, 27% had had radiotherapy, and 11% had either topical or systemic therapies applied. And for the metastatic cohort, 97% had had surgery at some point, 58% radiotherapy, and 30% systemic therapies. So what was the definition of an objective response in the locally advanced basal cohort? Well, first, you have to have an absence of disease progression. So disease progression would be an increase in uh, lesional size by 20% or more, failure of uh, lesion to respond uh, by reducing ulceration, or uh, increase in, in presence of new lesions while on the medication. So you have to have an absence of disease response of disease progression plus a 30% reduction in lesional size or complete resolution of ulceration and target lesions. It's also important to note that in this 30% reduction in lesional size, we are measuring just the diameter of the lesions. And per study protocol, we had to measure the scar as part of the lesion. So a lesion could be a very heaped up nodule lesion become flat, but if the diameter, including the scar uh, width, did not change, uh, that could not be uh, considered to be a response. 
So if there was a response, the uh, objective response was then classified into one of two possibilities. One was a complete response where there was an absence of residual basal cell carcinoma on sampling biopsy, and the other was a partial response in which there was either residual tumor on sampling biopsy or no sampling biopsy was performed, and therefore you could not call it a complete response. For the metastatic cohort, it's much easier. Um, we use the RESIST criteria, which is a common oncology criteria for measuring tumor burden, and uh, divided it into either a complete response in which there was a disappearance of all target lesions, or a partial response in which there was at least a 30% decrease in the sum of the longest diameters of the target lesions. So the objective response rates for both cohorts uh, was 43% for the locally advanced cohort and 30% for the metastatic cohort. As you see, the metastatic cohort was comprised completely of partial responses, while the locally advanced cohort was pretty much split down the middle between complete responses and partial responses. The median duration response time for both uh, trials was 7.6 months. Of the patients enrolled in the trial, about 50% dropped out at some point during the trial, while 50% continued treatments. Uh, the large reason for the locally advanced cohort for people dropping out of the trial was patient decision, um, which was not recorded, uh, as well as adverse events and disease progression. For the metastatic cohort, uh, disease progression was by far the largest reason for dropout. Treatment duration for the locally advanced cohort was 9.7 months median, and for the metastatic was 10 months. We'll go over this again because this is very important. There is a black box warning. You do have to be very careful about prescribing this to females of childbearing potential or to males who have a female partner of childbearing potential. Uh, it is teratogenic and embryotoxic, so you always have to verify pregnancy status prior to initiation of the medication in any possibly uh, childbearing uh, females, as well as advise both females and their male partners of transmission risks. And if you do suspect some type of exposure to the medication, please contact healthcare providers and uh, the Genentech adverse event line. For female patients, it's recommended you determine their pregnancy status within seven days prior to the initiation of treatment. And after a negative pregnancy test, initiate a highly effective form of contraception with a failure rate of less than 1% uh, prior to the first dose of Aravage. I personally um, feel that no one method of contraception is less than 1% uh, failure rate, so I kind of treat this as you need to be on two forms of contraception. Male condoms and oral contraceptives uh, are the most common. And the patients could, should continue this form of contraception for at least seven months after the last dose of therapy. For male patients, they should use condoms with a spermicide even after vasectomy because it can be transmitted in the seminal fluid. And uh, intercourse with female partners, uh, they should continue using the condoms for two months after the last dose of uh, Aravage. As far as blood donation, it follows the same guidelines as the female uh, patients. You should not donate blood while on the medication, nor for a period of seven months after the medication is stopped. And for nursing mothers, it's uh, not known whether or not uh, vismodegib is excreted in breast milk. Therefore, you have to use uh, careful clinical uh, decision-making when you decide if you need to put, this on a, put a nursing mother on the medication or not. I often get a lot of questions from the uh, area doctors about adverse reactions on the medication, um, and there are uh, quite a few, as there are in many medications. Uh, the big three to take home from this are the muscle spasms, alopecia, and uh, change in taste. Um, the rest kind of fall in line with, with I don't think, as common uh, side effects. You see here grades uh, one, two, three, four, and then all grades. Grades one and two are mild and moderate. Three is severe. Four is life-threatening or disabling. 
and five, which there were none of, would be death. Uh, in this uh, instance, Aravedge has mostly grade one and two uh, adverse reactions for the muscle spasms, alopecia, change in taste. You will see one grade four there for fatigue. I gotta think that's disabling fatigue, not life-threatening fatigue. I've never seen life-threatening fatigue before. Um, what I like to tell my patients about this is there are multiple different uh, pathways in the body that rely on the hedgehog signaling pathway. Taste buds do, hair follicles do. So I try to counsel my patients that these aren't even so much adverse events as expected events. If you are on the medication and your hedgehog pathway is becoming uh, inhibited, you would expect to have a change in taste because your taste buds are also going to be inhibited. You expect to lose some hair because your hair follicles are also going to be inhibited. And your muscle spasms, that's a very common uh, side effect as well. Continuing with the adverse reactions, there are a few more constipation, arthralgias, vomiting, but really the hair loss, the taste loss, and taste change, and uh, muscle spasms are the three that I see most commonly. Uh, it is important to note there were a, a couple uh, grade three uh, laboratory abnormalities noted, hypokalemia and azotemia, as well as hyponatremia uh, in a few patients, and amenorrhea developed in three out of 10 premenopausal women on the medication, so it is something that you need to counsel your female patients about if they are still menstruating. So we'll look at a couple case studies here to kind of delineate a little further what a locally advanced or a metastatic basal cell is and how some, some cases respond to Aravedge, some partially and some do not, unfortunately. So here's the first case. This is a 54-year-old man, history of locally advanced basal cell carcinoma. He'd undergone multiple surgeries in the past, including topical treatments, Mohs surgery. Um, these were recurrent tumors. He wasn't deemed a candidate for surgery because it was felt that he was unlikely to be uh, curatively resected, and they anticipated substantial morbidity and or deformity from that. Not a candidate for radiation because they felt they couldn't treat these lesions with a single modality. And pathology revealed for the first lesion, nodule and infiltrative basal cell. The second, they didn't uh, do any uh, histopathological examination other than just confirm that it was a basal cell. To be in the trial, all these uh, tumors had to be biopsied and independently determined to be basal cell by an independent pathologist. So this patient was put on Aravedge, 150 milligrams a day, a day until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity occurred. And you can see here at baseline and then at week 24, the ulceration had completely resolved. They did perform sampling biopsy on this uh, lesion, and there was no evidence of residual basal cell carcinoma on week 24, so this lesion was considered to be a complete response. The patient did have some treatment-related adverse events. You'll see the alopecia, dyskusia, and muscle spasms, loss of hair, change in taste, muscle spasms, you're gonna see that as a common thing, as well as some nausea and decreased weight. His other lesion, uh, you can see again, a complete re reduction in, in resolution of the ulceration by week 24, and no evidence of residual basal cell on biopsy. So both his lesions completely re uh, resolved, as well as had no residual evidence of basal cell on biopsy. So he is considered to be a complete responder. Here's another patient with a complete response, 66-year-old man with locally advanced basal cell, diagnosed initially in 1999. Multiple uh, surgeries in the past, not a candidate for surgery because of substantial morbidity or deformity, not a candidate for radiation because of the felt of risk of deformity. Pathology showed an infiltrative basal cell for lesion A and a nodular basal cell for lesion B. Lesion A at baseline, lesion A at week 24, you can see complete resolution of the ulceration, reduction in the lesional diameter. On sampling biopsy, there was no evidence of residual basal cell in week 24. Again, he had loss of taste, 
alopecia, muscle spasms, and decreased weight. Here's the nose, baseline in week 24. Again, no evidence of residual basal cells. So both of these had no evidence of residual basal cell in sampling biopsy. He is a complete responder. Here's a partial responder. And just looking at these pictures, a lot of you are probably already thinking this patient has Gorlin syndrome, and you would be correct. Uh, this is a 34-year-old man with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma, history of multiple surgeries and most surgeries in the past. Not a candidate for surgery because at this point, when you do so many surgeries, you are causing substantial morbidity. Uh, and not a candidate for radiation because of Gorlin syndrome. They are very radiosensitive, so you cannot use external radiation. Pathology showed a confirmed basal cell for lesion A, as well as nodular basal cells for lesions B and C. Lesion A at baseline, lesion A at week 24. Um, you can see complete uh, resolution of ulceration. It's very flat. However, there was evidence of a residual basal cell on sampling biopsy by week 24, so this is considered to be a partial response. The patient did have alopecia fatigue and muscle spasms, as well as a decreased weight. Lesion B at baseline, in week 24, you can see again complete resolution of ulceration. It's much, much smaller, uh, and there was no evidence of residual basal cell on sampling biopsy of this lesion. So this lesion was a complete response. However, you can only classify patients as responders, so because they had one partial response, this patient has to be considered to be a partial responder. In lesion C here, uh, you can see ulcerated heaped up by week 24, completely resolved, and no evidence of residual basal cell. But the more striking thing from this slide, I think, is look at all the other lesions. You could probably count over a dozen other lesions in this area, which were non-target lesions, not officially entered into the study. But look at the, the you know, amazing disappearance of these. And this reminds me, actually, of a patient that I had uh, in our study down in Houston. Uh, we were one of the centers. We had a 23-year-old woman who was a lunch lady at a local high school, and she had two small kids, grew up in the, in the town. So she came in to see us, and she had uh, Gorlin syndrome, lots and lots of basils, uh, started the medication, had a great response. And by the third month, she was actually you know, kind of jumping for joy. And uh, we were saying, you know, we're really happy that you've had such a good response. She said, it's not just that. It's, my little daughter's friends aren't staring at me when they come over, and when I'm you know, serving lunch to the kids, I'm not getting any kind of mutterings under their breath or people looking at me. And it was just really, really nice to see that she was so happy and doing so well. Um, and those kind of patients, in particular, I think, do very well on this medication. Here's a patient who's a non-responder. Not everybody is going to respond to Aerovig. Uh, at baseline, this 50-year-old woman had locally advanced basal cell diagnosed in 2001, a uh, history of multiple excisions. And because of the location of this uh, lesion, they thought she was not a candidate for surgery due to morbidity and deformity, and not a candidate for radiation because of the large field treatment area, as well as risk of injury to the uh, eye, optic nerve, and cranial nerve. In this area, they'd be mostly worried about the facial nerve. So pathology showed a confirmed basal cell. She was put on Aerovig, 150 milligrams a day. And there's baseline in week 24. Um, some of you may say that it does look like she's had some improvement. However, remember that the criteria are very strict. You have to have a 30% decrease in lesional diameter, including scar, to be considered a uh, treatment responder. And when you measure the scar in this patient, unfortunately, she did not have that. So considered to be a non-responder by independent review, uh, did have some adverse root events, alopecia, decreased appetite, change in taste, fatigue, muscle spasms, nausea, vomiting, decreased weight. 
This is a patient with metastatic basal cell. Metastatic basal cell is super rare. I've only seen two cases in my career, uh, and they were both because I was privileged to be part of this study. Um, incidence is very, very low. Some people estimate it at 0.0028%. Some people say it's as high as 0.55%. I would err towards the lower number. I don't think I ever see you know, one out of 1,000 patients with metastatic basal cell. Um, this 56-year-old man had metastatic basal, diagnosed in 95, history of multiple surgeries in the past. In 2009, it was found to have metastasis to the lungs. You can see the spicule, the uh, yellow arrow pointing to it right there in the lungs. He was placed on Aerovedge, 150 milligrams a day. And uh, at baseline, you see the spicule there. And by week 24, there was a marked decrease in size. However, it was still present. So the metastatic guidelines stated that if there was any tumor still present on uh, radiographic analysis, they had to be considered to be a partial responder. So he was a partial responder. And he had a host of uh, treatment-related adverse reactions, including both alopecia and abnormal hair growth, which I always thought was kind of interesting. Here's a patient with complete response. You may have noticed this was one of the ones we talked about uh, in the very beginning. 68-year-old woman with locally advanced basal cell diagnosed in 2009, had been operated on in the past, not a candidate for surgery because of the uh, size and depth of penetration of this tumor, not a candidate for radiation because the risk of actual brain damage from the external beam radiation. Pathology showed a nodular basal cell carcinoma. Placed on Aerovedge, 150 milligrams a day. There's baseline about week 23 complete resolution of the ulceration, shrinking of the uh, tumor, and no evidence of residual basal cell on biopsy. She had the normal treatment-related adverse reactions, alopecia, dyskusia, dyspepsia, muscle spasms. Here's an 82-year-old man with multiple basals, um, history of multiple EDNCs, excisions, most surgery, uh, unlikely to felt to be curatively resected, uh, not a candidate for radiation due to the extent of disease. Confirmed to have basal cells uh, in lesions A and B and nodular infiltrative basal in lesion C. Placed on Aerovedge, 150 milligrams daily. There's baseline in week 24. On sampling biopsy, they did show residual basal cell here, so this is a partial response. He had the normal treatment-related adverse reactions, as well as some abdominal pain, flatulence, altered saliva, and vomiting. Here's baseline week 24 for lesion by the ear. This one was a complete response, no evidence of uh, basal cell on sampling biopsy. And here's the neck, baseline week 24. Again, no evidence of uh, residual basal cell on sampling biopsy. Here's a 59-year-old man with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma, diagnosed in 99, history of excisions in the past, not a candidate for surgery because of morbidity or mortality, not a candidate for radiation because they had Golden syndrome. Pathology showed a confirmed basal cell placed on Aerovedge, 150 milligrams daily. By week 24, you see complete resolution of the ulceration, marked reduction in the scarring. Um, however, there was also no evidence of residual basal cell on biopsy. So if you just stopped there, this would have been deemed a complete response. However, the treating physician uh, decided they wanted to get an MRI of the area. Um, and by uh, imaging, there was a residual mass. So based on the RESIST criteria, you have to consider a, a residual mass to be residual basal cell carcinoma, so this became a partial responder. And here's another non-responder, 46-year-old male with history of local advanced basal cell carcinoma, diagnosed in 83. Again, multiple excisions, curatage, uh, treated with topical micomod in the past. Not at a candidate for surgery because of a history of, of risk of substantial morbidity or mortality. Uh, not a candidate for radiation because of risk of retinal damage from the lesion by the eye and a history of possible Gorlin syndrome. Pathology showed a nodule and infiltrative basal, both in A and B. 
placed on our veg, 150 milligrams daily. Here's baseline in week 24. This was considered to be a non-responder. Uh, some of you may be looking and saying you think this is a response, but remember, uh, you have to count the scar and the measurement of the lesion. So in this lesion, the scar diameter had not uh, changed enough to be considered to be a responder. Ditto for this one by the ear, uh, week, baseline week 24, uh, not considered to be a responder because scar diameter had not changed enough. Had the normal treatment-related adverse reactions of change in taste, hair loss, and uh, muscle cramps, as well as some problems with uh, quality of sleep, uh, fatigue, and abnormal hair growth. So to wrap this up, uh, Aerovege is the first and only FDA-approved oral treatment for advanced basal cell carcinoma and the, only, uh, and the first FDA-approved uh, hedgehog inhibitor. It's appropriate for adults with metastatic basal cell carcinoma as well as adults with locally advanced basal cell carcinoma whose tumors have recurred following surgery or who are deemed to not be a candidate for surgery or patients who are not candidates for surgery or radiation. Uh, it reduced lesion size in patients with advanced basal cell carcinoma in 43% of patients, as well as 30% of patients with metastatic basal cell carcinoma. Median duration of response was 7.6 months. And do remember that it does have that black box warning, so you do have to verify pregnancy status in any uh, female patients with childbearing potential, discuss um, contraception with both female and male patients, and warn patients about the risks. As far as getting the medication, it's a little different than most medications. Um, if you want any kind of pamphlets or education materials, please contact your local representative. To get the medication, patients have to go through a specialty pharmacy. You can't just go to CVS and order it, um, and your representative will be able to steer you through the process and get you access and all the, you know, walk you through the steps. It's actually very easy and very painless. And if you want to speak to a live support specialist at any time, they are available Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 5 p.m., uh, or you can go online to erovegeaccesssolutions.com. And that's it for the talk, but I'd love to field any questions you guys have because I know this is a new medication and you probably have a lot of questions about using it or, or determining who's a candidate for it in your practice. Hi, does the company provide any uh, financial help in uh, getting the drug to a patient who is uninsured? We had a case of that, and obviously these are the people who let their basal cells go for a long time, and then they become inoperable. Yes, so uh, that's an excellent question, and uh, I'll start by answering that. When I was involved in the study, one of the first things Genentech said to the people in the study, um, and especially the people with basal cell nevus syndrome, they were most afraid of what happens after the trial's up, what's going to happen to my medication, and Genentech told them, you can have medication for life, don't worry about it, we'll get you the medication. And that's actually carried over to their, their retail uh, branch now, where I've had a few patients that local doctors have worked with me to start on the medication who've had difficulty paying for the medication, uh, difficulty with their insurance, and Genentech has a, um, a financial assistance helping program and an access program where they will get medication for patients even if they don't have insurance um, and there's you know a sliding scale for even if they don't make a lot of money and, and have a big copay they are very good at providing assistance for that I have a patient who's four months into treatment and the diameter of the lesion hasn't changed at all but it's gone from a flat lesion after biopsy to becoming crested up again so what do you think about that personally do you consider that really uh, someone who's failing the drug I would say that's probably someone who's failing the drug um, you know the reason behind that is is up in the air 
What I would say is, for my own opinion, uh, a lot of basal cells have different mutations, especially in one patient. I mean, we'd have patients on the medication who literally had dozens and dozens of basal cells, and you would see on them, they would get response in some basal cells and not a response in others. So even in one patient, I feel you can have different mutations. Uh, I think part of it is you can have genetic mutations, Gorlin syndrome, obviously. It's not just one mutation in patch. There's different ways that they can have mutations. And then people who have UV-induced malignancies, those mutations can occur anywhere along the pathway. And if anything occurs downstream of smoothened, you're not going to be able to stop it with this medication because this works on smoothened. So I think that at that point, that patient probably has failed, at least for that lesion. Good morning. Um, I have a question. We use this drug in one patient um, with no past history of liver issues, and she developed liver toxicity on this drug after four weeks. We had to stop. What was the uh, toxicity? Was it just an increase in AST, ALT, or? Sky high. I mean, sky the, the um, GI specialist, we admitted her, um, mm -hmm. and he said it was a drug-induced liver toxicity. So we then brought it back to the medical liaison who said she, there was only 100 patients, apparently, I guess, in the initial study. Um, and I don't know if you've seen this, but it scared us enough to be very hesitant about using the drug again. Well, I, she was a non-drinker, no other, you know, anyway. For any medication, I am, I'm very cautious about uh, patients, and I, you know, there are no official recommendations for checking labs. In the study, we were checking labs every month on the patients enrolled as well as prior to enrollment, um, and I did not see in any of the patients that we had an increase in liver enzymes. I did see a slight bump in creatinine in a few people, nothing actually to the point where they were having a meaningful reduction in GFR, but there was a slight bump in creatinine. Uh, However, like you said, it was a very small study because it was actually fast-tracked through the FDA because there is no treatment for metastatic basal cell carcinoma. So this was considered to be you know, a, a necessary drug to not even go through a phase three trial before uh, approval. So that's why we don't have the 1,000-plus patients. It was a phase two trial. So that said, I always check labs before I initiate someone on the medication, and I, ch I check at one month. And after that, if everything's looking good, I feel good. So. I don't think that you know you did everything correct. I, I'm not sure I would be concerned that everybody is going to get that type of effect. But I absolutely agree to check the check the labs prior to initiation, and I check after a month. And if you see something like that, yeah, I would stop. I would not put them back on it. I mean, I've had patients on other medications that I would never have thought to have Stephen Johnson's from, or you know, some other type of reaction. And as soon as I see that, I take them off whatever they're on. So I think that is the correct way to do it. Okay, thank you. Um, what is the appropriate follow-up after initiating treatment? So there is no official, again, recommended follow-up. Personally, I follow them up after a month, or I actually, because I'm 100% most surgical-based and referral-based, I coordinate with the local doctors, the referring doctors and PAs, um, who have their patients on the medication, and I recommend seeing them after one month, checking labs again. And if after that point they're looking good, I think you can go to a Q3 month follow-up schedule and, and see how they're doing. And my, my rationale is after three months, like the, the previous question, um, usually you should see uh, an improvement at that point. So if you're not seeing it three months, you can make a treatment decision. If you are seeing good improvement, some of these patients are going to need more encouragement. Um, one of the things that I found in the trial was there were quite a few patients that would get a great response by months two or three, 
and they'd come back in and say, I want to stop the medication now. And we'd say, well, why do you want to stop it? Well, because I'm looking so much better. And we'd say, well, you still have a ways to go or you know, trying to do this trial to get some data. And they said, well, at this point, the muscle spasms, the hair loss, and the taste change is really outweighing the benefits for me. At first, I felt the benefits outweighed the, the adverse events, but now eh, I think I'd like to stop. So at that point, you may need to do some hand-holding. So I think it's good to see them back at, at about three months' time. And is there, um, does the amenorrhea resolve after you complete the treatment? The amenorrhea, I'm not aware if it resolves or not, um, but the rest of the uh, adverse events, such as hair loss, taste change, and the cramps do resolve, so I would assume that amenorrhea probably resolves after treatment too. Well, thank you guys very much for having me, and uh, 